All right, so today, like Noah and Rochelle said, is the last day of Urban Legends. And I love how God has been challenging our beliefs through this whole series. It might be things that I've talked about, but it might also be just places where you've accepted something your whole life and you're like, whoa, is that actually in the Bible? Is that actually who God is? Is that who Jesus is? What does the Bible actually say? So I love how it's empowering us to say, who are you, God, and take ownership of our faith. So today we're going to be talking about what happens when I die. I know it's really morbid, okay? (laughs) I asked the staff team, you know, could we come up with a better title? What do you guys think? And really, nothing else explains it as well. So I'm really sorry about the title, but listen, this is going to be an exciting, encouraging message. Come on. And I think it gives us a lot of purpose for the here and now when you know what the eternity is that you're living for. Come on. So we're going to dive right into urban legends around the afterlife because there are just so many. Um, Growing up, I got a picture of what it meant, you know, to die from watching movies and from things people said at funerals. Um, You know, my family did not go to church and obviously didn't talk about it at school. So I remember in 1988, uh, the movie Beetlejuice came out. That was my first uh, taste of the afterlife. It was very weird and creepy. I, I don't think you should watch that movie. And I watched it as a child. In 1990, the movie Ghost came out, big hit that year. And I saw some demons in that movie dragging people to hell. And I was freaked out. It gave me nightmares for a while. I watched the 1998 movie City of Angels, and I saw some angels hanging out on the beach, watching the sunset, falling in love with people. And, you know, maybe for you, you grew up in the church, and maybe you watched the Left Behind movies, and you were like, I don't want to get left behind. I know that for sure. (laughs) I've heard people say, I don't want to be so-and-so on Judgment Day. I've heard people say, God is recording everything that you say and do, and all your dirty little secrets will be brought to the light on Judgment Day. I've heard people say, heaven is where chubby baby cherubs sit on a cloud, naked playing harps. I've heard people say, heaven is kind of boring. I've heard good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. But what does the Word of God actually say? None of those things. So there are some things that we know without a doubt that are in God's word. And I want to tell you that there are some places where God is vague on what happens with the afterlife. There are some places where he says, you just got to trust me by faith. It's the whole point of our faith. We trust God without knowing every single detail of every little thing. But in order to understand the end, we're going to start at the beginning with God's original plan for our lives. And we're going to pick it up here in Genesis. We'll put the verse up on the screen for you. Genesis 2, 8. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight, good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to till it and keep it. So at the beginning of existence, we've got God. He's made this amazing garden, and he's got mankind. He says, here you go. I'll put you in the garden. I want you to enjoy it. I want you to enjoy relationship with each other. I want you to enjoy relationship with me. 
I'm going to give you a purpose. I want you to keep this garden. I want you to till it. I want you to cultivate it. I want you to pull out the potential of the garden. I want you to harness the resources that I put in the garden. It's all very good, and I'm giving you purpose within it. He says, enjoy me, enjoy the garden, enjoy relationships, enjoy purpose. He creates us, and then he also says, I will give you free will too. Verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man, you may freely eat of every tree of the garden. It's like a whole buffet. You can eat any of it. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall die. God says, I know you don't know what death is, but trust me, it's not good. He doesn't sit down with them and explain every little nuance of it. He's not like, oh, you should be afraid of this or that, or you know, this is what it looks like. He says, just trust me. If you eat of that tree, you'll die, and death is bad. And up until this point, humanity, all we knew was good. We knew God's goodness. We knew his good creation. We had a good life. We did not know evil. Knowing evil would kill us. And it did. The enemy deceived us. We chose not to believe God's goodness. We chose not to trust him. And we chose instead to eat the fruit. We chose to sin, which simply means choosing something over God, saying, I don't believe you, God, in this area. I'm going to do what I want. So to limit the consequence of our choice, God curses the earth and he banishes us from the garden. Genesis 3.22, the Lord God says, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Side note, you have the cherubim in that passage, and it's not just a little fat baby angel playing a harp. It is an angel with a sword with four wings and four faces guarding the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve, here they are. They said, I don't want to trust you, God. They ate the fruit, and they experienced evil. They experienced shame. They experienced fear. They were naked, so they hid. And God says, I don't want you to live forever in this broken state. And he had a plan to make a way to restore them through Jesus. And he mentions it to them in Genesis. And then we look forward to the cross and we see that Jesus did what Adam and Eve could not do. He lived perfectly. He trusted God in every area. He did not sin. And at the cross, he took on all of our sins so that our relationship with God could be restored. Because when there is sin, there must be punishment. God is so holy and righteous, he can't have it in his presence. But he sent Jesus so that we could still have a relationship with him because he loves us so much. So we've got Jesus, he's at the cross. He's crucified between two criminals. One of them starts picking on him and saying, yeah, if you're really the son of God, just get down here and rescue us. You know, he starts making fun of him. And then there's the other one who believed him. And that's the choice we all have, to believe in Jesus, to believe he is who he says he is, or not. The criminal who trusted him said in Luke 23, 41, this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, 
Remember me when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus replied, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And Coldplay started playing the song Paradise, and they were all like, yay. The word paradise there in the Greek is the same word for garden, paradisos. We'll put it on the screen for you. Jesus is saying to the thief, later today, when we're both dead, you're going to be with me in the garden. And the Garden of Eden existed at the very beginning in humanity's past. And Jesus says, it still exists right now. And when we die, that's where we're going to go. And of course, we know Jesus rose from the dead after three days and defeated death. But in that moment, he says, you will be with me in paradise. Can we just pause for a second and look at that thief? You know, the only good thing that he did was say to Jesus, remember me? He was on the cross because he needed punishment. The thief was not a good person. We don't even know if he was sorry for what he did. The only thing we know is that he believed Jesus. I mean, the nerve of that guy to say, Jesus, remember me? Are you kidding? You are a guilty criminal. But our salvation is not dependent on us. It's dependent on Jesus. Come on. So this guy doesn't pray a special prayer. He doesn't say some great words. He just says, remember me, Jesus. And he's the first person to ever get saved. He's the first person to ever be with Jesus in paradise and trust him. And the Bible, over and over, when you look at it, anytime you see the first of something happen, the first is significant. And this is the first person to believe in Jesus. And all he did was believe. Nothing else. And for us, we believe in Jesus. We trust him through faith. Nothing else. Don't be tempted to add something to it. Don't be tempted to take something away. We believe. Don't add any requirements that are not from God. So are you saying that I can wait my whole life till I trust in Jesus like that thief did? You could do that. You could wait till your deathbed. Yeah. But you're missing out on an entire life of thriving, of peace and joy and so much more. Jesus says, you can trust in me right now. So what does happen when we die? We all know our bodies stay here. And if you believed in Jesus, your spirit and soul join him in the garden. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. We're confident that to be absent from the body is to be present with God, to be present with Jesus in paradise. And that's a good place that we can look forward to and we can be confident in. And there's another place where people without God go, and it's called Hades in the Bible. It's called death. Uh, it mentions it in a few places. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty three, 23, Capernaum, you'll be, will you be lifted to heaven? No, you'll go down to Hades. So it, it distinguishes between two locations. People who believe in Jesus go to the garden, heaven, paradise, and those who don't go to Hades, the grave, death. And most of us think there are two phases. There's life on earth here in a body with a soul and a spirit, and then there's life after death in heaven or Hades as a spirit and soul. 
But I want to tell you today, if that's your belief, your theology is incomplete. Because the Bible says it's actually three phases. Life on earth here in a body with a soul and spirit. Life after death in heaven or Hades without a body. And then a resurrection in the garden city or a separation from God in the lake of fire. Resurrection is what happens after heaven when we get new bodies on the new earth in the garden. John 5.28 says, Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. What is good is believing in Jesus. The work of God is to believe the one he sent, which is Jesus. What is bad, what is evil, is being dead in our sins and saying, I refuse new life in Jesus. Jesus says, Revelation 2.7, to everyone who overcomes, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. This is a really powerful verse. I want to unpack it for you. So it's saying, everyone who overcomes, we overcome by the blood of the lamb, the blood of Jesus, and the word of our testimony. So everyone who believes in Jesus, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life in the paradise of God. And the Greek word for paradise here is the same one Jesus used at the cross. Paradisos, it means garden. He's saying the future for everyone who believes in Jesus is to eat from the tree of life in the garden of Eden. The garden was in humanity's past. It's right now when you trust in Jesus and it's in our future. This is the tree that Adam and Eve were not allowed to eat from because they sinned and they knew evil and God did not want them to suffer forever in their fallen state. But Jesus came, he restored our relationship with God. He took on all the places we fall short. And because of Jesus, we get to eat of the tree of life. He gives us permission. So the age to come is going to be a return to Eden, a return to how it was supposed to be all along with peace and justice and flourishing and thriving and life forever. People think that Jesus is a ticket to heaven. I mean, I guess in some ways he is, but really he would be a round trip ticket because he takes you to heaven and then one day he brings you back to a new heaven and a new earth right here. The old heavens and earth will be wiped clean and God will make a new city on earth. And we get a picture of heaven from the book of Revelation. I encourage you to look at it this week. As you read it though, remember that it's apocalyptic, which means some of it is a metaphor and some of it is literal. So here's some highlights. Revelation 4.2. John says, Instantly I was in the spirit there in heaven and saw the glory of it, a throne and someone sitting on it. And he goes on to describe how in heaven everyone was worshiping God. And it was amazing. It was like our worship this morning, but on steroids. It was just so amazing. Revelation 6, 9, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had been maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long, Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of earth? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer. And that sounds kind of weird, but it's basically the people who are already dead waiting at the altar saying, Jesus, come on, let's go. We want to go to the new earth. Souls waiting for resurrection, waiting for God to restore the earth. 2 Peter 3.9, though, says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some think of slowness. He is patient with you, 
not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. It's saying, why didn't God just fix everything right at the Garden of Eden? Because he's giving humanity time for as many as possible to trust in him, to choose life. He is patient with us because he doesn't want any of his children to spend eternity apart from him. He doesn't want any of his creation to be separated from him. He loves us. Verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a loud noise. The elements will be destroyed with fire and the earth and everything that is done on it will be disclosed. But in accordance with his promise, we wait for new heavens and a new earth where righteousness is at home righteousness. We are righteous because of Jesus. The new heaven and the new earth will be our home. And in this moment, Peter is talking to the church about um, how the earth was destroyed by the flood in Noah's time and how, you know, everything that was evil, everything that hurt, everything that was hard was taken away and wiped clean and God started over with Noah. And he's saying in the same way, the whole earth will be destroyed by fire. It'll be wiped clean. It'll be stripped down to the bare bones, stripped down to the studs, like if you're watching a home improvement show. He's stripping out everything, and he's restoring it to his original intent. Come on. So the old heaven and earth will be burnt up, and that means all injustice, exploitation, hate, hurt, sin will be burned up, and the earth will be restored to what God intended all along. And we look at the book of Revelation, and it talks about how heaven comes to earth. Revelation 21.1, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. It's just like in the garden. He will dwell with them they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more, for the first things have passed away. Come on. He says, I am making all things new. I will wipe every tear from your eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or sickness or pain, no rejection, no heartache the absence of everything evil, what we were never meant to experience. And it will be a place of beauty, a place where we will see Jesus face to face, where he will love us and we will love him back. It'll be a place where he makes all things new. The heavens and the earth will be new. He also says our bodies will be made new. 1 Corinthians 15, 35 some skeptic is sure to ask, show me how resurrection works. Give me a diagram. Draw me a picture. What does this resurrection body look like? If you look at this question closely, you'll realize how absurd it is. I love how he talks to them. It's so funny. There are no diagrams for this kind of thing. We do have a parallel experience in gardening. Any gardeners in the house? A couple of you. So this is what the resurrection body is like. Here you go. You plant a dead seed. Soon there's a flourishing plant. There's no visual likeness between seed and plant. You can never guess what a tomato would look like by looking at a tomato seed. My kids have something planted downstairs in my office. I have no idea what it is. It's just something they put in the dirt. We'll see, you know. You never know what's going to come up. 
Um, what we plant in the soil and what grows out of it don't look anything alike. The dead body that we bury in the ground and the resurrection body that comes from it will be dramatically different. So what will we look like? I don't know. Tomato looks different than a seed. Will we be the age that we were when we died? Will we be 33 like Jesus was? Will we get to pick? I mean, I feel like I look better now than I did at 33. You know, I hope so. Maybe we'll look like what it looked like in the Garden of Eden. That's what I think is closer to the reality. The new earth will look like the Garden of Eden, according to the last chapter in the Bible. So I think maybe our bodies will too. Revelation 22, here we go. This is the whole end of the Bible. Verse 1 in this section, if you read it in your Bible, it's called Eden Restored. So the Bible opened up with Eden, and this is Eden Restored at the end. The angel showed me the river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So he's saying, this is what it'll look like. The tree of life will be there. There'll be a river. We'll live in the garden city a city with breathtaking walls and gates. And if you read it this week, you'll see all kinds of precious gemstones and streets paved with gold and dwellings and a river and a forest. And it's beautiful. Uh, Verse three, no longer will there be any curse. We don't know what that's like. We've always lived under the curse. He says, no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. What will we do? We'll serve him, just like we do now. We work and we rest. We live out our purpose, work that he gave us to do from the beginning, and we rest in him. We enjoy his goodness. We enjoy his presence. The prophets in the Old Testament described it like this, Amos 9, 14. Everywhere you look, blessings. Blessings like wine pouring off the mountains and the hills. He's saying, it's a, it's a city of blessing, and we will rest in that city. We will enjoy God. We'll enjoy his gifts, just like the opportunity we have to rest each week through Sabbath. We're practicing now for eternity. Then Isaiah 25, 6 says, Here on this mountain, God will throw a feast for all the people of the world, a feast of the finest foods, a feast with vintage wines. It's so funny that they include that in there. They're just not, not just wines. These are vintage wines, Okay. A feast of seven courses. I don't think I've ever had a feast of seven courses, but it sounds delicious. A feast lavish with gourmet desserts. Not just desserts, these are gourmet. Come on. And here on this mountain, God will banish the pall of doom hanging over all peoples, the shadow of doom darkening all nations. He'll banish death forever, and God will wipe the tears from every face. He'll remove every sign of disgrace from his people. Just like Revelation was saying, here it is again. He will remove every tear. He will take away our disgrace. He'll banish death forever. And he'll throw a party over and over in the Bible. There's so many parables and stories of the kingdom of heaven being a feast and a party. And it's enjoyable and everyone's invited. Why does any of this matter? Because what you believe about eternity determines how you live today. If you don't think any of this matters, 
then, man, that really stinks. It's like having no purpose. But if, if you know what is going to happen in eternity, then everything you do here and now matters so much, which I think is so encouraging. We're not just wasting our time. We're preparing for eternity. Come on. So it shapes what we do, what we value, how we invest, how we work, and how we rest. It shapes who we become because we carry who we are to the next life. We don't carry our stuff, but we carry ourself. We can practice for eternity. We know that our lives continue into eternity, which means you have permission each week to rest now, to take a Sabbath like we talked about in Roots. You have permission. You don't have to do it all because, yes, our life is short now but we have all of eternity with God. And when we work, there will be no curse. We've never experienced that. Our work will be exciting, fun, challenging, rewarding, fascinating, energizing, significant. It'll be custom fit to who we are. It will matter. Isaiah 65, 17 says, I'm about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. He says, we'll build houses, we'll plant vineyards, and we'll enjoy our work. We can enjoy it. Just like God enjoyed creating us. He created us to enjoy his creation. He created us to be creative like our creator. He's good now, and he has good things for us in the future. And he wants as many people as possible to come to him. Come on. Enjoying life and dreaming and being who God made us to be. And we'll do that in the next life. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Everything you do for Jesus is not in vain. It's an act of worship to God. It's serving humanity. It's not a means to an end. It's, it's an end. And, you know, maybe some of you are like, oh, I hate work, you know, working to get to the weekend. And, and that's okay. But... Our work is going to be so meaningful and different in heaven. And we talked about work and rest during week one of Roots. You should listen to it if you haven't gotten a chance to. But our work in this life is practice for work in the next life. And I don't know completely what that will look like, but we're learning skills that we'll need in God's new world. We're learning about our gifts. We're learning about who we are. We're developing character. We're becoming, through a process, who God made us to be. We're becoming more like Jesus. We're becoming the way God intended us to be from the start of creation. And if you love your work now, who's to say you won't get to do something similar in the future? If you love taking care of your children, if you love going to the office, whatever you do, if you love it, who's to say you won't get to do something similar? Jesus told a parable in Luke 19 about a businessman who went on a long journey. And before he went away, he trusted his servants with some minas, which is just some money, some pretty small amounts. And then one day he came back and he asked, what did you do with what I gave you? And to the ones who invested it, he said, I'm not just going to trust you with more money. I'm going to trust you with ruling cities. In God's economy, it's not just you know, some minas equals more minas. It's like, no, no, you're going to be faithful with little. I'm going to trust you with cities. 
And that was what Adam was supposed to do all along. Come on. God gave him the raw materials of the garden and he could have made it into a city. What if you're sitting here and you're like, yeah, I hate my work though. It's okay to admit it. You know, we're in church. We're not going to lie. Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. If you hate your work, if you do it in his name, you'll receive an inheritance. Your work in this age will be rewarded in the age to come. Even the most insignificant things that we do matter. Maybe it's not something at your nine to five job, but maybe it's something that you do on the weekends. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 42, if as my representatives, you give even a cup of cold water to a little child, you'll be rewarded. It's so simple. A cup of water given in Jesus's name to a child matters to him in eternity. And that brings us to the concept of judgment day. There are two judgments that the Bible talks about. The first one is from Revelation 20, 11. It says, I saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. I saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And anyone whose name was not found recorded in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So this is called the white throne judgment. And it's basically, do you know Jesus? If you know Jesus and you've received his grace, your name is written in his book. It can't be erased. It's like the thief at the cross. You know me, your name's written in the book. It's that simple. And those whose names are not in the book, who said, I don't want to spend life with Jesus, and I definitely don't want to spend eternity with him, instead of going to the garden, they go to the lake of fire. And God doesn't tell us a lot about it, just like he didn't tell Adam and Eve a lot about death because it's really not the point. Um, basically, we get to choose the garden by trusting in Jesus, or we get to choose the lake of fire by trusting in ourselves. And the lake of fire is hell, and it was not created for people. It was created for the devil and for his fallen angels because God is so holy and perfect and righteous, and a price must be paid for what they did. So hell exists for God to deal righteously with Satan. It's not Satan's home. It's his prison. It's his execution chamber. And those who choose to follow him are breaking their father's heart because his will is that no one should perish, but that everyone would believe, that everyone would trust him, that everyone would get to experience his goodness hell exists for the same reason that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was necessary in the garden of Eden because without a choice we don't have love so he says this is a choice it's not what I want for you but I love you enough to let you make that choice and one of the urban legends that I hear a lot is that God how does a loving God send people to hell people aren't sent to hell all our sins were dealt with at the cross. And God loves sinners. He doesn't send people to hell, but we choose to be apart from him. We choose to say no thank you to a relationship with Jesus. We choose to reject what he did for us. We choose to say, I can do it on my own. And he loves us so much that he lets us choose that, but it breaks his heart. 
well, what about on Judgment Day? Is he going to replay a tape of just all the places we've messed up? No. He keeps no record of wrongs. If you're looking for all the things you've done wrong, it doesn't exist. When you trust in Jesus, the moment you sinned, he wiped it away. His blood covered your sin. Because of Jesus, God says, you're blameless, you're free, you're spotless, you're white as snow. When I see you, I see my son Jesus. The only movie that God would make of your life is a highlight reel because he's a good father who loves his kids. So you're not gonna get to him on judgment day having lived your whole life loving him for him to say, now let's watch a video of all those bad things you did. That's not who God is. Can you imagine if I did that with my children? Hi guys, come here, come look at this video I took of you disobeying today. They would feel shame. That's not what a loving parent does. Instead, he says, here's the good things that you did in my name. Here's where I'm proud of you. We have a short clip for you of my kids. This is the kind of thing I like to show people about them. When they do things that I'm proud of, and this is my son, he learned about creation in kindergarten, and he's sharing what he learned with us. Day two, God divided the sky from the water. God God divided the sky from the water. And his sister's doing just interpretive dancing. <laughs> but I'm proud of them. I love where they're learning about God. I, wear the, I love where they love him. And if those are the things I celebrate with my kids, God is such a better parent than I am. You think he's really going to play a reel of all the places you messed up? No. He's proud of you. He wants to celebrate you. He wants to enjoy his time with you. Come on. So the second judgment is for believers. And 1 John says we can be confident in the day of judgment because of Jesus. We can get excited about it just like we get excited for an award ceremony. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. So this other, other translations call it the Bema Seat of Christ. And it's basically, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's saying, you guys know about the Olympics, right? Y'all are Olympic fans. You watch them all the time. Well, you know the, the awards podium at the end where all the winners come and you know how they receive their medals and they receive, you know, their crowns. This is what that is for us. At the end of our race, we'll receive our reward. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and share in your master's happiness. That's what the second judgment is all about. And what are the good things and bad things that we do that it's talking about? The good things are the things that flow from a relationship with Jesus. The good things are the places we're saying, I trust you, Jesus, and living out of there. The bad things are just the filthy rags of self, of religion, of saying pressure, trying to be good enough, being burnt out instead of trusting him. And anything that flowed out of a love for Jesus is fruit that remains, and it receives a reward. 
And then we have another verse for you. Everything else is going to burn up. It's not punished. Jesus already took our punishment. But it's not rewarded either. It doesn't last. 1 Corinthians 3, 2. If anyone builds on the foundation of Jesus with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, the work of each builder will become visible for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. If what has been built on on the foundation survives, the builder will receive a reward. But if the work is burned up, the builder will suffer loss. The builder will be saved, but only as through fire. So it's saying everything that is ugly is burnt up. War, violence, poverty, waste, religion, all the places we fall short and miss the mark, it's going to be burnt up. And everything that's beautiful and true and lovely will be shown for what it is. And somehow all of our work that is what God considers to be gold and silver and costly stones, it will follow us into the age to come. That's so exciting. So we get to God and he says, well done. You gave a cup of water to a child. I'm proud of you. You don't have to be a missionary or work in ministry to do things that matter for Jesus. He says, I love you and I have things for you to do right now where you're at, with your family, with your work, with your friends. And I'm proud of you. He's more proud of you than you think he is. And on Judgment Day, we can get excited because we'll get to be face to face with our Father. And he loves us and he's proud of us. And we'll get to enjoy him for all of eternity. I hope this cleared up some urban legends for you to know the goodness of who God really is. We've got an amazing future to look forward to because of Jesus.